0: As day follows night, as blue skies follow rain, so the plug for the Agora podcast of the month must come at the start of every episode of this show. This month, it's my absolute pleasure to recommend the History of Egypt podcast by Dominic Perry. As the name implies, the show discusses the history of the Egyptian civilization, a land whose art suffuses our own cultural zeitgeist in many ways. However, much of what we we know about Egypt comes through a filter which is itself something of a sad colonial legacy and is wrapped up with frenzied sensationalism and exoticism. Dominic's approach is refreshingly down to earth, calmly delivering top quality research to you in a way that tries to paint a picture of the real people of the time without losing that legitimate wonder at the achievements of this great culture and its people. I just want to emphasize the research part. As he is a PhD candidate nearing the end of his dissertation, you can be assured that the show meets the highest academic standards. But, as a member of the Agora Podcast Network, I can also assure you it's fun and interesting as well. Check out the History of Egypt podcast wherever fine podcasts are stored. Or check out the show notes for a link to his website. As thunder booms off the hills, As rain quenches the parched plain, so we must honor and praise the patrons and donors of this show that help keep this podcast strong in facing our mighty enemies. This month, we have quite a few patrons, as I saved them up from last time, and one donor as well, and then we will be back to the steady state of things. I I do need to thank everybody for stepping up and becoming donors and patrons just in advance. We've had a bunch of them. And that's been great. We've also had some people drop out, so we do need all your support as well. So first up, we have Steve, who has been given the commission of colonel in the Royal Hawkman Corps. Dive, my Hawkman. Next up, we have Patron Timothy, who has been given the rank of lieutenant in the Royal Hawkman Corps. Now that there are two of you, I may say, dive, my Hawkman. Next up, Patron Ellen. As shall be known from henceforward as Duchess Ellen, the pipe wrench. Next up, Shelley. Shelley shall be known henceforward as Grand Warden Shelley, keeper of the leftover IKEA parts. Preston shall be known from this day to many other days as Prester Preston, the priestly Prussian prince and printer of the Praline project. Good job, Preston. Jerome, due to his Bold actions in defense of the realm shall be known from henceforward as Sir Jerome, Chief Footman of the Porcelain Throne. Finally, we have a joint donation from Ed and Carrie. As is required on the internet, these two names will be portmanteaued together to be Carried, and they shall be known from henceforward as Lord and Lady Carried, joint overseers of the Royal Teamsters. Because they cause carried. Anyway. If you would like to join their surried ranks, Head over to the website, which will be in the show notes, and go to the support page where you will find easy ways to make secure payments via PayPal and become a recurring donor via Patreon. There is also a store page now with some really fun designs, and I'm really hoping some people pick those up. Check them out. We've got three designs now, and we have them on t-shirts and mugs, some other things. So really proud of those. So check them out. Thank you very much. To Lord and Lady Caryad, Timothy, Jerome, Preston, Shelley, Ellen, and Steve. And all the other donors and patrons, past and present. Your generosity is too kind, and I really appreciate every bit of it. It really does help keep body and soul together. So, thank you very much to everybody, and on with the show. The wear and tear of a slave, it has been said, is at
1: the expense of his master but that of a free servant is at his own expense. The wear and tear of the latter, however, is, in reality, as much at the expense of his master as that of the former. The wages paid to journeymen and servants of every kind must be such as may enable them, one with another, to continue the race of journeymen and servants, according as the increasing, diminishing, or stationary demand of the society may happen to require. But, though the wear and tear of a free servant be equally at the expense of his master, it generally costs him much less than that of a slave. The fund destined for replacing or repairing, if I may say so, the wear and tear of the slave, is commonly managed by a negligent master or careless overseer. That destined for performing the same office, with regard to the freeman, is managed by the freeman himself. The disorders which generally prevail in the economy of the rich naturally introduce themselves into the management of the former, the strict frugality, and parsimonious attention of the poor, as naturally established themselves in that of the latter. Under such different management, the same purpose must require very different degrees of expense to execute it. It appears accordingly, from the experience of all ages and nations, I believe, that the work done by freemen comes cheaper in the end than that performed by slaves. It is found to do so even at Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, where the wages of common
0: labor are so very high. Quote from Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, as read by Daniel Doty of the Inestimable Cannonball Podcast. It's just called the Cannonball Podcast. I feel that it's inestimable. Anyway.
1: Everyone's right, and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning... (laughs)
0: Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 76, Slavery in the Middle Ages, part 3, The Economics of Slavery Redux. In the last few episodes, we've been examining the phenomenon of slavery in the Middle Ages and the processes at play that transitioned the identity status of the Serwi, of the Roman Empire, into the serfs of the High Middle Ages. The last two episodes have focused on the theory and historiography of this topic, with the last episode in particular focused on how and why the very influential narrative proposed by Marc Bloch is wrong and right. Today, we will move past theory and examine what we currently understand of the economics of the time and the processes of this transitional period. Now, this doesn't mean Bloch is entirely in the rearview mirror. As we discussed last time, Bloch's model focused on a slow, continuous evolution caused by economic factors set to the background of the privatization of political authority across the empire. While the post-structuralists have enriched this view by multiplying the number of variables worthy of a historian's consideration beyond economics, I think it's still worth taking a moment, or er, episode, to discuss some of the things that modern research has done to update Bloch's ideas just in terms of the political economy of the time. As usual, we must start with Rome. In terms of the late Roman Empire, modern research in this area has filled in spaces in some very important ways. Some research indicates that mass-scale slavery may have been exaggerated by earlier generations of historians, and in particular it's worth noting that some areas, like Italy, would have had many more slaves than other areas like northern Gaul or Britannia, and Italy had better records. Still, it's undeniable that a large portion of the Roman population were slaves, and that meeting a slave would not have been an uncommon experience, especially in the nodes of urban growth that served as tentpoles of Roman power. Many of those slaves, as we have discussed before, worked in ways that would be familiar to us as unskilled laborers, overseen by armed guards, and essentially, more or less worked to death, growing cash crops for sale in urban marketplaces. As I mentioned in the first episode of this series, several decades of economic historians explained the collapse of this system by reference to Adam Smith's arguments about how slavery was not efficient in the long run. As I mentioned at the time, these arguments have been overturned. Slavery definitely has the capacity to be profitable in the right conditions. While many economic historians would prefer to ignore this finding, a new consensus has begun to emerge to explain the decline of Roman slavery from an economic standpoint. Podcast footnote. For the duration of this episode, I'm going to be speaking from an economic standpoint. As you may be aware, economists look at the reality of a system before trying to discuss the morality, and unfortunately to get anywhere today, I'm going to have to do the same. I would like to acknowledge up front that everything I'm talking about for the rest of this episode, often fairly glibly, in practice implied the murder, humiliation, rape, and torture of tens of thousands of human beings. It is my view that, to really ensure slavery is consigned to the dustbin of human history, We have to understand how it happened, and to understand it, some abstraction and emotional distance is necessary. I'll be going back to being extremely grumpy about the entire thing next episode, and honestly later even in this episode, but for today I need to speak like an economist rather than as a human being. End podcast footnote. While slavery has existed in some form for most of human history, there are a lot of fairly obvious reasons for it not to become a dominant or even a major means of production, even when it's legal. At the most basic level, any labor system requires a labor force, a means of organizing that labor force, and a market for the goods produced. Each of these points is worth discussing in some detail, given the complicating factors unique to a slave based labor market, most prominently, that the slaves do not want to be slaves. Getting people to be part of the labor market usually requires a balancing of incentives for the parties involved. In the slave market, that happened, but the um, employer Has the unique option of using brute force to drag a person into the system. But this is actually still more complicated than it sounds. As I mentioned last time out, the wealthy and powerful members of the societies of the ancient Mediterranean had, early on, sought to just enslave anyone they could willy-nilly. This resulted in something called balancing behavior by political scientists, which is to say that when faced by an existential threat from a small but powerful group, the less powerful will band together in large numbers, and eliminate the threat. As a result, the legal systems of the region banned the enslavement of members of the body politic. And yet slavery continued, because in general, the law had three and a half avenues for legal enslavement that did not focus on members of the body politic. debt slavery, status inheritance, penal servitude, and military conquest. I'm going to give a short discussion of each of these factors, but the thing that unites them is that the people involved were not seen as parts of the body politic. Debt slavery was not supposed to exist in the Roman Empire, but they had a weird way of showing it. In short, they punished the seller, i.e., the person being enslaved. Liberty was seen as so important that the selling of it was banned. If a person was found to have been so evil as to try and defraud a person by trying to sell their liberty when it was a thing that could not legally be sold, the punishment was effectively to let them sell it. They had cut themselves off from the right to liberty by playing around with such a sacred item. The buyer was apparently given a stern talking to and a tut-tut, but doesn't seem to have been otherwise punished. It's sort of like how in modern societies we hate the idea of human trafficking for prostitution, and so the police are sent out to raid brothels and arrest all the prostitutes, the purported victims of the crime. At the same time, the records we have of this sort of thing are from after the fact, and it seems to have been relatively rare as far as we can tell. Perhaps there were institutions to prevent such sales while they were still occurring. Nonetheless, it did happen, at some level, throughout the imperial period, albeit not in enough numbers to produce the labor force necessary to fuel the villa system of the empire. So, our source of slaves must lie elsewhere. Status inheritance is pretty straightforward to anyone familiar with history of slavery in the United States. Slave status usually followed matrilineal descent, which is to say children born to slave women were usually considered to be slaves. That said, Roman society was actually very patriarchal and their slave system didn't actually have a genetic component to it, and this created some exceptions to the matrilineal descent rule, and also some serious problems that are seen in the legal system. One of the major sources of exceptions is that it was not uncommon for a Roman man who was not able to reduce children with his wife, or who just sort of had a sentimental disposition, to acknowledge the paternity of one of his children born from one of his slaves. This was totally fine. It was totally within his rights to acknowledge paternity. This immediately made the child his and free. Uh, It's also worth saying that this opened up the possibility of him taking one of the other slave children if he needed one, but this is not usually something that we hear about too much in the records. This overriding of matrilineal descent by patrilineal privilege created some problems, however, notably in situations where a free person had a child with a slave that was not his, and then tried to acknowledge it. This created real problems in terms of determining ownership. There were fines involved, but then if that person was poor, how are they supposed to pay for it? In general, the real recourse of the law was to simply ban sex between a slave and a person that was not their owner. Just as a fun aside, that's my sarcastic voice, we do have a fair number of records of discussions by authorities of the era as to when and how it was most economical to make pregnant women work. Despite being relatively straightforward conceptually, slavery by inheritance is a big fly in the ointment of many historiographical theories of slavery. The issue surrounds the expected rate of, if you will, natural reproduction in the enslaved population. If you assume that the Romans were working their slaves to death without mercy, you can expect a negative rate of population growth and outside sources would be needed. On the other hand, it's very likely that the natural population growth of a slave population could keep up with at least a level of stability. We have the historical example, which is relatively well documented, of the United States here. The federal government of the United States cut off the importation of slaves in the 1850s following larger trends in the world at the time. And it turned out that despite the protestations of the slave owning classes, the enslaved population of the United States was able to sustain its numbers despite some very harsh working conditions. It should be noted that what eventually happened was that places like Virginia, which had more mild climates and less harsh specialization in really physically demanding cash crops, tended to have less bad working conditions, and so they tended to focus on the breeding and exportation of people out to the sugar, rice, and cotton plantations of the deeper south. So they had a positive population growth in Virginia and places like that, and a negative population growth in the deeper south, and so the mismatch was made good by exporting those or importing those populations along that gradient. And yes, this is all very gross. Whether a similar situation developed at any stage in the Roman Empire is less clear, but this historical example does throw into doubt the theories that tied the collapse of the Roman economy directly to the reduction in the number of slave imports. Older historical narratives tend to naively assume that slave populations simply could not possibly choose to reproduce under such terrible conditions, and therefore they must have relied on imports. For a variety of reasons that range from sad to disgusting, we obviously can't rely on this idea. However, it's worth saying that the elimination of imports of any good will tend to make the price rise slowly over time, an idea that we will return to. Penal servitude existed in Roman and Greek law, and scholars are not entirely agreed on its status, though they do agree that it wasn't a major source of slaves. There are arguments for penal servitude being reserved for people who deserved a fate worse than death. On the other hand, people the state really hated were usually tortured to death publicly. So penal slaves may have been people who had committed some heinous crime, but not quite something like treason. In any case, penal slaves were fairly uniformly sent to mines, places where working conditions were so bad that death was nearly guaranteed, and where it would be a bad investment to use conventional slaves that had been purchased from an outside source. Needless to say, the state and the people managing these institutions made a lot of money from their operation, but this is still not the major source of slaves for the empire, as I said. Ultimately, the mortality rate was so high that the mine managers occasionally had to resort to buying slaves on the open market and sending them to the mines. Finally, as we've discussed in the past most directly, slaves taken in war probably constituted the largest source of slaves at least at certain times, and of course they always constituted the major source of slave imports. Certainly, war conquest constituted the major catalyzing event for the creation of slave societies, at least in terms of Rome and Athens. Which is to say that when Athens and Rome established their empires, they began with some large victories that involved the taking of huge numbers of slaves. These slaves probably glutted the market and made slaves cheap, What we can say for sure is that, for example, the end of the Second Punic War led directly to the creation of massive slave plantations in Sicily owned by Roman senators, something that began the transition of Roman society from a society with slaves to a slave society. It's worth noting quickly before we move on that the presence of large numbers of war captives does not itself constitute the only prerequisite for a slave society. An example that we will be returning to a few times in this episode is the Nordic society of the Viking Age. They were able to very famously take many slaves in the early Middle Ages, but they were not really a slave society, at least not in my mind. We will look at why in a moment, but first, a quick roundup. In terms of the supply side of the narrative of slavery in the Roman Empire, debt slavery and penal servitude were extant, but small sources of supply. Slavery through inheritance was certainly a very major source of slaves later in the imperial period. Slavery through conquest was important early in the empire uh, and in the late republican period, but waned in importance over time as the empire's expansion slowed. At the same time, there is plenty of evidence that even after the border stopped moving outward, people continued to be enslaved due to things like the empire's cross-border raiding activities, and the capacity of the empire to act as a giant economic dynamo, pulling resources in from sellers outside. Once the empire's economic woes began due to pandemics and the long-term devaluation of the currency, amongst many other factors, this economic pull slowed more and more, but it didn't go away. Indeed, as we discussed in our earlier episodes on the medieval economy, the Eastern Roman Empire would remain a major slave market throughout the early Middle Ages. In the West, of course, these trade networks collapsed in some relation to the empire. As the government collapsed, so too did the infrastructure, both physical and financial, that allowed the trade to exist on an efficient scale. More importantly, the military frontiers created by the Merovingian civil wars and the chaos of the Italian wars collapsed the old trade networks, even as bold mariners in the Baltic set the stage for a new northern arc of trade as an alternative to the old systems. While this economic dislocation was ongoing, it's fairly clear that the orientation of slave trading changed from a sort of north-south system oriented from the frontiers of the empire on the Rhine and in the British archipelago towards the emperor's empire's heartland in the Mediterranean basin via Gaul, to a system that moved slaves from all over northern and western Europe towards the east, either via the northern arc of trade or across the former province of Gaul to the Mediterranean and then to the east from there. The big question this raises, which I actually mentioned all those months ago, is why the Frankish realm never became a market for slave trading, just a transit hub. To answer that question, we must move on to the other inputs into a slave-based economic system beyond the availability of labor. The most obvious thing about slavery, and the thing slave societies spend the most time hand-waving away, is that slaves don't like to be slaves. Getting people to do things that they don't want to do, and have no incentive to do, itself takes work, and this cuts into the profits of any such enterprise. Efficiencies are possible, such as arming and training your guards so that they can deal with more people at a time than untrained, unarmed people, but in general, the more people you are keeping as slaves, the more work needs to go into getting those slaves to do things. How much effort is required, we can think of as a factor of the number of slaves involved, the kind of work they are being asked to do, and the slaves' estimate of their chances if they make a run for it. At this juncture, I think it will be helpful to consider some specific examples. Let's start with a more traditional society, like, say, that of the Viking Age Norse, when they were at home, at least. Thralls might be ordered to do basic household chores or basic farm work. This could be very physical, and it was hardly fun, but for most people who might have ended up as a Viking thrall, it was also not unlike the work they would have been expected to do wherever they came from. Their status was worse, and they were vulnerable to abuse by their claimed owners, but running away into the woods for a while would be relatively easy if things got too hot. Actually, escaping back to their home would be... very difficult, but it was also not impossible, as evidenced by a few accounts of Anglo-Saxon clergymen who managed the feat. It seems that because these societies had no organized law enforcement system, and no system of identification, if you got a certain distance away from your owner, you could begin passing yourself off as a wandering laborer or something like that, and eventually get passage home on a trade ship. Incidentally, this same thing was true of Ireland, and it's, you know, from the Count of St. Patrick. Of course, a person would probably not want to try this in winter, and they would have to dodge bears and wolves and stuff, but beyond the brute realities of nature, very little kept thralls in place beyond the persistent vigilance of their claimed owners and those owners' immediate neighbors. This kept the relative number of thralls relatively low, compared to the population size as a whole, and ensured reasonably good treatment in the grand scheme of things. You know, as good a treatment as you can expect someone to give to a slave. This is worth noting in particular because the North Vikings took thousands of slaves in their raids on Western Europe. The cost of the labor input could not have been the limiting factor for the growth of slavery in this society. These slaves were available. They were herded into Norse ports by large numbers of armed guards, kept in pens alarmingly similar to the ones on the west coast of Africa, and ultimately shipped and marched away to the east. Despite the availability of large numbers of presumably cheap slaves, the Norse landowners did not seek to become a slave society, and so these trading posts remained, in other words, transit points and not destinations for most slaves. To understand why, let's look at another example. In the pre-Civil War days of the United States, enslaved people faced very different conditions from those of the Norse thralls. The work being demanded, particularly in the sugar and cotton fields of the Deep South, was backbreaking, dangerous, and physically demanding. I, a person of Northern European heritage rather prone to heat exhaustion, would probably last 15 minutes. But someone who attempted to escape from this situation faced odds that often kept them in place. The American South was, despite being very rural, also very interconnected by telegraphs and railways. An escape attempt could result in notices being sent all across the region to a network of well paid slave catchers, and that is assuming the slave made it past the local slave patrols, which were conducted by the militia and or the local constabulary, depending on which time period we're talking about and how things were developed in that particular region. If they made it to the north, the Dred Scott decision, once that happened, meant that they were still not necessarily safe unless they could arrange to purchase their own freedom, often with the help of local abolitionists. Most on the Underground Railroad found it a better bet to just keep on going into Canada. For a slave escaping from the Deep South, say Louisiana or Alabama, this trip from wherever they started from to Canada would constitute a journey of several thousand miles, mostly on foot, while being hunted the entire time. So, unlike the Society of the Norse, the American South had a highly developed system of law enforcement and communication that made successful escapes very difficult. Now, just to put this out loud, these resources were paid for in taxes and in time by the wider society, which was generally involved in supporting the slavery system. As a result, conditions for the slaves could be worse than they would otherwise be, and the slave owners would not face the need to invest as many of their profits into armed guards in the local area. Of course, there would be some armed guards, but there wasn't quite a need to keep people in place locally, there was more of a defense in depth. The Roman Empire obviously did not have the benefit of railroads or telegraphs, and they didn't exactly have modern law enforcement organizations per se. But it was a large area of uniform laws with relatively sophisticated transportation and communication methods, and it did have some form of law enforcement system. So at the height of the empire, it was possible to use threats of physical violence from a small number of guards to force a large number of slaves to do physically difficult work, though it should be said that the agricultural work of growing grain is a lesser order of magnitude of physical difficulty than sugarcane production or cotton. Now just to complete these sort of mental experiments, let's imagine for a moment a southern plantation owner gets displaced out of time to the Viking Age in the Nordic countries. Let's give him the benefit of knowing the language somehow and let him bring all his gold and worldly possessions that are not entirely anachronistic he would find himself in huge slave-trading entrepots in the trading ports of the region, and he might feel a bit at home. Maybe he uses his gold to try and set up a southern-style plantation in the farmlands of Scandinavia. Let's say, for the sake of argument, he wants to set up a rapeseed plantation a few centuries before the rest of Scandinavia really caught on to the potential of canola oil. Now, he might buy a few hundred slaves and some land, and he might try and get them working for him. But he would quickly find that his usual tactics of brutality and scare tactics to enforce hard work would not serve him as well. His hundreds of purchased slaves would easily slip away into the night unless he hired a whole bunch of soldiers to guard his borders. Even then, his apparent wealth might generate some resentment from his neighbors who could go a viking in his new plantation and try and steal a few of slaves for themselves. Even if he knew who did it, and got the althing to take his side in a suit, he would very likely need to use his own troops to enforce the decision on his foes. If his slaves rose up and killed him, this might be something that got all the local landowners on his side, but that's probably the only support he could expect in that society. This is sort of what happened to the slave owners of Italy during the Italian Wars. Essentially, the Roman slave owners accidentally moved across a temporal dividing line and moved from an era more like the American South and into an era much more like the Nordic lands of the Viking era. From a well-connected society of laws in which landowners could manage properties by letter from great distances, suddenly horizons shrank as Byzantine and Gothic armies crisscrossed the countryside, burning and looting as they went. Many of these letters we have from slave owners of the time are eager to know how things are going on their villas, and then, a few letters later, we hear them complaining that the vast majority of their slaves have run off. Some of them joined the armies that were ravaging the landscape, others just fled into the hills. Podcast footnote. The tone of these letters is annoyingly familiar. If you've ever read one of the letters from an American slave owner, say George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, seeking the return of one of their runoff slaves, you will sort of understand the gist. They're confused, hurt and a little bitter that these people who they had treated with such kindness would reward them with such disloyalty. The phrase, after all I did for them, is even used in one letter if I recall correctly. While it is necessary to put yourself in the shoes of the slave owners in order to understand the incentives they were facing and working under, documents like this are an important reminder not to get too close to our subjects who are, at the end of the day, scum. End podcast footnote. Given that we know that something similar happened in all the western provinces of the former empire at one point or another, the slave owners of the western Roman empire faced a changing economic situation as a result of the changing political situation. They could no longer rely on the Roman state to enforce the laws that kept their slaves in their assigned places, doing their assigned jobs. If they wanted to keep the slaves productive in the same way they had before, under the same conditions, they would need to expend more of their resources on hiring guards or something similar. Whether this made sense economically, or not, requires us to turn to the final factor worth considering here, the market for the goods being produced. It is a basic truism of economics that cheaply producing large quantities of something no one wants will not make you any money. Or to put it another way, increasing supply when there is no demand is not a smart thing to do. This was the situation faced by slave owners in the dying days of the Western Roman Empire, because those roads and infrastructure networks did more than carry communications that allowed slave owners to catch fleeing slaves. They also connected producers to markets. It's often said that the Roman Empire was an urban empire full of large cities and with a complex economy. When the empire's lines of communication started to be cut by invaders, when outbreaks of plague and malaria decimated the cities, and when government investment in long-distance trade dried up, this all had implications on the profitability of Roman slave-based agriculture. These slave-run villas didn't just grow crops, turn them into flour, and then sell them at the market like it's some sort of phone simulator game. They should be thought of as cash crop farms, even though they were growing wheat, essentially just like modern industrial farming. If you're growing 500 acres of wheat or wine or you're producing garum, maybe not 500 acres of garum, but whatever, you aren't stashing that all in the shed for a rainy day. You need to sell it or it'll go bad. If a slave owner could not get their goods to a city without a barbarian stealing it, they would lose money on the costs of running their slave villa. If they could get to the city, but all the inhabitants were dead due to a plague or war, same difference. Clearly, the economic and political collapses of the late Roman Empire and early Middle Ages had implications on the economic profitability of the Roman slaveholding system. As we've discussed, the contraction of the empire made slaves harder to get, though not impossible, as there was a domestic production. More dangerously, the collapse of the security apparatus made it more expensive to keep slaves in place by force, while also making it so there was less profit to be made from selling the goods they produced. Meaning it was harder to cover the costs required to run these agricultural systems. So, while in general we know that slavery in the classic sense was not actually inherently unprofitable, it does require inputs that are favored by a certain set of social and economic circumstances. These circumstances did not long survive the empire, and so it's fair to say that classical slavery was no longer profitable in the new circumstances. As a result, a change in the way slavery operated is to be expected. Now, this may all make it seem like the entire slaving system just suddenly collapsed, but we all know that didn't happen, and you should all be well aware of the why by now. These changes took place rather gradually over the course of a few centuries, and happened at different times in different places. Societies and cultures are actually very resilient. We can suffer major short-term calamities and rebuild. Disasters have to be continuous and long-term for human societies to really change and when they do, they will usually adapt using cultural materials that already existed, rather than trying to rebuild from scratch. This is indeed what happened here. Part of the story, however, is also that slavery in the Roman Empire was more than one thing, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. The sort of chattel-slavery-agricultural-factory system that we've mostly been talking about today was very common, but we know from earlier episodes in the series that using slaves as a kind of turnkey business was also very common in the Roman Empire. In an urban setting, this would usually imply giving the slaves some tools in a shop and then just coming by every so often to collect the profits. This seems to have been a way of doing business in rural areas as well. In this model, the slaves would be more or less left to farm however they wanted to. They'd be given a mill and some rudimentary shelter and maybe some seeds. There might be an overseer who would work with the slaves to roughly organize things, But otherwise everyone would be left to work for themselves, with the slave owner stopping by to pick up some of the profits once in a while. The slaves would mostly feed themselves off their own produce, stuff they grew on small cottage plots, and by selling some of the produce for food. This model would have had different advantages and disadvantages for the owner, though I should say we don't have the accounting records of any major senatorial estates. Still, we can expect that the gross profits would have been less extreme, but it would also have a lot less overhead. If you are not beating and starving your workforce, they tend to, you know, live longer, meaning that there is less need to replace them with increasingly expensive imports. Using slaves acquired from local sources, probably slaves via inheritance, has the added benefit that they are less likely to run away since they have nowhere they want to get back to and they don't know anything different. Slave accounts from the pre-Civil War South often recount a slave's terror at the idea of leaving the plantation on which they grew up, even if it's for a better situation sometimes. Such a change, whether that was running away or being sold, implied leaving the people they knew. And we can sympathize with that, I think. Given that there was less risk of mortality or flight by the slaves, there would be less need for expensive armed guards, and not coincidentally, less of a likelihood of the guards killing the valuable slaves. The slaves would mostly feed themselves, so there was less capital needed there. Mills and houses and eventually churches were initially built by the owner, but they were often maintained by the residents. So even with lower profits, a landowner who had thousands of acres of land could still live very well off the profits of such an enterprise, something that made it profitable even before the empire started to falter. At the same time, the system did rely on the Roman transportation system to squeeze profits from the cash crops they produced by dumping them on the urban centers of the empire. It is impossible to say from the evidence which of the two models of estate management predominated in the Roman world before the fall of the empire. It does seem like the purest plantation-style villa was popular early on, and that the turnkey business system came into more prominence later. In all likelihood, which version was used probably depended on the cash crops involved. For example, if you were growing wine and olives in Calabria, you had long-growing seasons and massively valuable, labor-intensive crops. It's possible there was no incentive to have the slaves do anything other than crank out wine constantly, as long as there were urban areas to buy it up. If you were growing wheat, however, it's possible that since you were just having your slaves grow food, it made sense to take advantage of a system where you had less administrative overhead let the slaves eat some of what they grow, supplement it with vegetables, and just send a freedman by at the end of every season to gather up the profits. What we can say from the evidence we have is that while these systems could not survive in the form described without the Roman government and infrastructure, one of them looks a lot more like a medieval manor than the other one. It's likely that few estates running on the classic slave plantation model survived their own local collapse for very long, Though both kinds of villa had to undergo changes to become medieval villages. They probably began a rapid process of change the moment law and order was destroyed. That happened at different times in different places. The final fall of Italy in the Italian Wars in the 500s probably represented the last destruction of these systems in their classical form in the Western Empire, at least in terms of a mass scale though that said, they may have lasted until the Slavic and Islamic conquests, and even beyond, in the Balkans and in Iberia. We can probably expect that things fell apart earlier in Britannia and Gaul. What we haven't yet established is the manner of change or the rates of change. The rise of first the Gaulish and then the Frankish empires, along with the settlement of the nobility in the countryside in these areas, probably meant that some form of Roman estate system lasted well into the Merovingian period albeit one severely damaged and requiring increasing levels of personal attention from the owner of the estates. In any case, the final destruction of the long-range trade system discussed by Michael McCormick during the Merovingian civil wars, along with the nadir of urbanism that went along with that process, likely also spelled the end of whatever remained of the classic Roman agricultural system in these dependent regions. So that puts things in the 600s or so in what we would now call France, Though there may have been some holdouts in the south as late as the breakup of the Carolingian dynasty. Ireland and Germany both, for the most part, were never Romanized, while records in Britain are so bad that all we can say is what the archaeology suggests. This seems to imply that after the legions pulled out, things remained stable for a little while, like Wiley e. Coyote walking off a cliff in a cartoon. Then the cities collapsed, agriculture declined, people resettled to Bronze Age hill forts. Interesting, the lifespan of most people increased because the Roman Empire wasn't that great for a normal person. And then a bunch of German pirates took over. By the time those pirates learned to write things down, the agricultural system of that area was unrecognizable compared to the Roman antecedents. This brings us back to the golden years of Charlemagne and the Frankish Empire. And the question of why it never became a destination for the long-distance slave trade after they revived long-distance trading. While Charlemagne may have funded some of his war machine with captured people, the records don't contain evidence of mass-scale enslavement that would imply that the Carolingian Empire was the main source of this trade. Regardless, huge numbers of people were being moved through, near, and around the Frankish territory for sale in the major slave-based agricultural systems of Constantinople and the Italian Caliphates. So, why did no local market emerge for these slaves in the nascent Frankish Empire? After all, the local nobility were concentrating local power in their hands and had taken over huge tracts of land, the empire had a pro-Roman ideology, and the slaves were probably cheap. Why not do as the Romans did? This is a complex question, and my sources don't give a clear answer, but let me suggest a few reasons. One, the conditions weren't right. Despite Charlemagne's attempts to create a land-based professional bureaucracy, law and order don't seem to have fully stabilized in his empire the way they did in Rome, largely due to local corruption. Raids and counter-raids between feuding noble families that served to carry off peasants seem to have been somewhat common, especially after Charlemagne's death, uh, with the resulting people simply being resettled on land vacated by previous raids. Two, on a related note, Charlemagne's empire was not around long enough for the wealth to really concentrate in the nobility's hands to the same level it did in terms of the senatorial class in Rome and for any kind of stable system to emerge more generally. Important as the foundation and breakup of this empire was for the European ideology, Charlemagne's empire was never really fully consolidated. Three, and this is probably the biggest point, the Franks simply couldn't compete on sale price. There were two major, fully consolidated wealthy empires in the Mediterranean with existing slave systems that were willing to pay top dollar for human beings. The opportunity cost for a merchant was pretty clear, and for local lords, the opportunity cost of paying prices that would have been competitive in order to then play around with a new plantation system versus just letting the slaves go on by and to the Venetians it must have been pretty clear. This has to be a key part of any analysis of the situation in the Nordic countries as well, and probably also in the British archipelago at the same time. Which is to say, they sure were cheap locally, but you could sure make a lot of money selling them elsewhere and so why bother experimenting with a whole new agricultural system when you could make quick money selling people on? Number four. This is the least clear point, but most pertinent to the rest of our series. There may have already been something going on locally, allowing nobles to exploit their land with some swarm of unfree labor that made it so the previous three points were overwhelming. Which is to say... If you've got this opportunity cost thing going on, and you've already got something developing locally, things become more clear than if you had absolutely nothing going on. Whatever the actual reasons behind the, um, failure of the Franks to develop a slave society, the clear thing is that they didn't. Something else happened instead, and similar things happened in the British Isles, Italy, in Northern Iberia, and in Central Europe, at least in the early Middle Ages. What that thing that developed was will be the topic of future episodes. In today's episode, we discussed the economics of slavery, focusing on the three main inputs of the slavery system. The labor supply, the security apparatus, and the market for the goods produced. We discussed the ways a person could become a slave due to debt, inheritance, penal servitude, and conquest in war. We discussed how the collapsing security situation in the early Middle Ages made it very expensive to keep slaves in a situation that they did not want to be in. And we discussed how the collapse of the economic system of long-distance trade via urban centers eliminated the market for primary agricultural goods that the large-scale plantation-style villa system of the empire was designed to serve. We finished by discussing the importance of turnkey villa systems that probably were better able to survive the fall of the empire. And what all this meant in terms of the failure, I don't know why I chose that word when I was writing this, the failure of the Frankish Empire to adopt mass-scale slavery as the basis of its economic system due to its failure to consolidate, as well as the opportunity costs presented by the slave trade to the East. In the next few episodes, I will start describing how the various incentives described today came together in the early Middle Ages, and how this social and economic process were used by the new nobility of the early Middle Ages as they sought to adapt the institutions of slavery that they inherited from Rome into the new environment, how this affected free peasants, and ultimately how this led to the institutionalization of serfdom. For all that and more, tune in next time to Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation.